Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, I'm struggling a bit with my leg at the moment. That's doing my head in. (laughs) Sorry. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you, because Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town named Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the Gospel of Christ. Well, thank you, John, and um, thank you to the musicians for that song. I, I love that song. Um, I love the tune, and I love the words. It's just very complicated to sing, isn't it? I can't, I'm not confident enough to be able to sing it. Plus, I also, if I can complain just for a moment, I feel that when it's a psalm, 
on the last slide when it comes up and it credits the songwriters, I feel like God should be on there because he did the lyrics. I was thinking of the they're great lyrics, aren't they? And then I thought they should be. God wrote them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a reminder just in two songs that we have things to thank you for and we go through difficult times in life. We thank you that however we're feeling this morning, you remain the same yesterday, today, forever. We thank you that you minister to us and amongst us. You know who we are, what we're facing in life, where we're going. Uh, You know where we need to be encouraged or where we need to be prodded. Most of all this morning, Father, we thank you for your son. And in these early chapters of Matthew, as we've we've been looking at the coming of Jesus, we, um, we thank you for the opportunity to think again afresh of who he is and what it means. Father, broaden our horizon this morning of who your son is so that we might rejoice at our saviour and king. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I was going to do something a little different this morning as we began. Uh, I pulled out in the end. I was going to get you to raise your hands firmly in the air when I said certain statements so that you could declare in front of everyone what you believed and so that you could look in judgement on others as they raised their hands. And I thought it might be a little confronting and a little um, uh, challenging. But I'd still like you to do it, just don't raise your hand. But what I'd like you to do is imagine whether you would be raising your hand at which particular point. I'm about to ask you to consider a couple of well-known people and reflect on your thoughts on them, as well as recognising that there will be other people here who think very, very differently on those people. hope that's clear. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's one of the most successful entertainers of all time. The best-selling album of all time is Thriller. There's not even another one that's close. He co-wrote one of the best-known and most successful charity records of all time, We Are The World. Who did he co-write it with? Lionel Richie is exactly right. He did the moonwalk. He was an amazing dancer. Who here thinks he was talented? Don't put your hands up. You don't have to do that. Hands up if you think he's talented. You don't have to put your hands up. But what would you do? Some people want to. Uh, Who thinks he was overrated? On a more serious note, he's been accused of some terrible crimes. Who thinks he's guilty? Who thinks he's innocent? Moving on. Donald Trump. I hate using Donald Trump. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? uh, But it feels too easy, but it works. Donald Trump is a successful New York businessman been very successful financially in property deals in New York. He was a successful uh, reality TV star as he hosted his show, The Apprentice. He's currently doing the job of the 45th President of the United States. Is there a more... Some people laughed at that. That's a fact. Uh, Is there a more polarising person in the world right now? Some people love him, admiring his lack of filter in a PC world, telling things as it is. Some people are offended him, seeing, by him, seeing him as a, a liar and his views on people and life and lifestyle. Hands up if you're a fan of Donald Trump. Don't put your hands up. Hands up if you don't like Donald Trump. When it comes to people, it's very complex. There's objective facts and truths about them, and I've shared some about both the two people that I just mentioned, but there's a certain subjectivity to people, how we individually respond to them what we think about them, how we react to them. Michael Jackson has fans and he has haters. There are people who wear manga hats and there are people who've burned effigies of the 45th president. 
Well, we're in this series in the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel and Matthew, the author, has been presenting us a picture of the child Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't arrived. We've only been hearing about him and we've found out some incredible things about Jesus. Son of David, son of Abraham. He's the one who's going to fulfil all these promises in the Old Testament. He's the Christ. He's God himself. He's the one who's going to rescue people from their sin. We've been seeing some incredible things, but this morning we find him being born. We see him arrive And this chapter will tell us more of the greatness of who this child is who just arrived, but perhaps more importantly and certainly differently from the last couple of weeks, what we will start to see is people responding to him. And just like what I said before about those two figures, we see that there are mixed responses to Jesus. Despite who he is objectively, despite the facts about him and the truths about him, we see people responding differently. So what I want us to do is to go through the passage in a bit of detail, let's work out what's uh, happening here, and then think about what it has to challenge us on. Uh, Verse 1 tells us, if we can have it up, Jacob, uh, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. There's a number of King Herods uh, in, in the New Testament. This is the one we normally call the Great. Apparently the others weren't as great. This is King Herod. We're then told that some Magi came from the east and asked Herod, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? Now notice the word king has been used twice there of two different people in two verses. Herod has been called king in verse 1 and then the wise men come and they're seeking the king of the Jews and they clearly don't think it's Herod and for us who've been reading Matthew's gospel it's very obvious they clearly mean Jesus. And this sets up the tension of the rest of the chapter. Who is the real king? Is it Herod or is it Jesus? And it sets up the tension for Herod because he himself is not going to take this news well that there is another king, an imposter to his throne. Now, we know very little about these magi. Uh, They don't appear, the magi, in Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel or John's gospel. They only come up in Matthew. And most of what we know about the magi for most kind of human beings comes through Christmas carols. So when you think of We Three Kings of Orientar, Not a lot of accuracy in that title. We don't know there were three. We don't know they were kings. And Orient sounds slightly racist. I don't think it has to be, but it's, it's there. We don't know any of those things. They're assumptions. Magi means literally wise men, so it doesn't mean that they were definitely royalty. Uh, And we assume there was three because they bring three gifts. But it could have been a hundred magi bringing three gifts. We do know they were Gentiles from the east. And they come. As little as we know about the Magi, they seem to know that little about Herod because they they kind of just burl up to him and ask him this question without realising how he's going to take it. Verse 2, they say, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And they don't seem to have any inkling that this might annoy Herod. This might upset him or tick him off in some way. But it does. Verse 3 tells us, Herod heard all these things and was disturbed. It also says that all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Why Jerusalem? I don't think this is because Herod was such a beloved figure in, in, in Jerusalem that when he was disturbed, the heart of all the people went out for him. I think it's because Herod's the kind of guy that if he's disturbed, people around him suffer. And that's why they're disturbed. If he's disturbed, we've all got to be careful. We actually know from outside the Bible's history, from other history books, 
that this particular Herod uh, suffered terribly from paranoia. We know that he killed uh, his wife Marianne and at least two of his sons. That's the kind of character this Herod is. That's why Jerusalem is disturbed. Well, Herod, hearing this, thinks, I need to do something. So he gets the religious leaders of Judea together to try and find out where the Christ would be born. Now, notice what, what's happened there. That's very important. Herod has been told that a king of the Jews has been born. That's what the Magi have spoken of in verse 2. And he knows that that must be the Christ in verse 4. He rightly understands and works out that this king who's been born is the Christ, the one that the whole Old Testament has been waiting for, the one that all the promises of God and prophecies of God have been pointing towards. The religious leaders tell him, well, it's very clear in the Old Testament, the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. So Herod asks the Magi, when did the star appear? Now, we aren't told why he does this, but we know from the rest of the, this chapter what he's doing is he's working out the rough age of the baby and he's working out the rough area where the baby lived. Then he sends the Magi on to Bethlehem. Well, on you go, off you go to Bethlehem and uh, find the baby and worship him and, and when you've done that, make sure you come back and see me so that I can go and worship him too. The Magi uh, then leave, they follow the star to the house where Jesus was. And notice verse 9, this is miraculous. Some people say, well, there's a moving star, it can't have been a star because stars don't move, so it must have been a, a nova or a comet or something like that. Now this is, a, this is supernatural. It's a star that moves and then stops over one place. This is, this is the work of God. And I said a couple of weeks ago, I don't quite understand why people get worried about the supernatural or, or, or think, well, I can't believe in that. If you believe in a God who's powerful, of course he can do these things. Of course he can move a star across the sky. And of course, when it's a one-off incident in history, i.e. God coming to earth as a human being, of course that event will be marked by the supernatural so that people can see the significance of it. This was a once-in-history event. Well, the star moves and leads them to the right place. And when the Magi get there, we're told that they see Jesus with Mary and in verse 11, it's lovely, they bow down and they worship him. Not often you worship a, a baby or a young child, but they do. They recognise who this is and they have a great response. They also give three gifts, the famous frankincense, myrrh and gold and they were the key to those gifts is they signified royalty. These were the gifts that you gave to someone of noble birth. Again, they've got it right. Well then in verse 12, the Magi are warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod. Remember Herod said, come back so that I can worship the kid too. Uh, but they're warned in the dream not to and so they return to their country by another route. And this is the first of four dreams in this chapter. We've got this one in verse 12 and then Joseph has three dreams in the rest of the verses, verse 13, 19 and 22. But the narrative now moves. It moves off the Magi, who've been the focus up until this point, and goes on to Joseph and the family. And Joseph is told by an angel of the Lord in this first dream to take his family to Egypt because Herod is going to try and kill Jesus. Now, I spoke last week, if you were here, about how incredible I think Joseph was last week. He's good again here. 
Last week I praised him in part for something that we've already sung this morning because Joseph trusts and obeys. He does it here and we're supposed to see it and I want to encourage you with it. Have a look at the way Matthew writes this, uh, these couple of verses. Verse 13. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, the angel said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. The exact same words are used in the instructions given by the angel as in the actions done by Joseph. He just obeys, he trusts and obeys. The same thing will happen in verses 20 and 21 when Joseph returns. The angel of the Lord comes to another dream, tells him to go back and he does exactly the same thing. Joseph is wonderful in these early chapters of Matthew. I said before, I think Jesus uh, was not only blessed as God as his heavenly father, he had a wonderful earthly father as well. So Joseph does it. He obeys, he takes his family, flees to Egypt, stays there until Herod dies. Uh, And he'll stay there until he gets this next dream uh, telling him he can go back. But while Joseph and his family are in Egypt, Herod goes mad. At some point he realises that the Magi are not going to do what, they to- what he told them to. They're not going to return to him and tell him where they are. And, he, and, and so he uses the information he's got. He knows roughly how old this new king is. He knows roughly where he was born. And so he orders, awfully, tragically, that all the boys in Bethlehem and its neighbouring areas are to be killed. All the boys under two. Notice... He, he quite literally goes the extra mile. Not just Bethlehem where he knows he's been born, but verse 16, Bethlehem and its vicinity. It's truly awful. Mercifully, uh, Herod doesn't carry on living for too much longer. He himself dies. And then when Joseph and the family move back to Israel, they move back, interestingly, not back to Bethlehem, not even to Jerusalem, which is the main centre, but to Nazareth. Well, that's our passage What does it teach us and challenge us on? The passage is clearly still telling us that Jesus is the guy. All these early chapters of Matthew are saying the same thing in different ways. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the great one. And it continues to do that here. Chapter 1 had been doing it before Jesus arrives. Chapter 2 does it through Jesus arriving. In our passage, you can see the significance of Jesus because there's four dreams with angels of the Lord telling people about him. That doesn't happen often in the scriptures. It happens when Jesus has arrived. There's also, as well as four dreams, there's four Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Did you pick up how many times John said this was to fulfil, this was to fulfil? So in verse 5, if we can see it, Jacob, the prophecy of Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Tick. Verse 15, the prophecy, out of Egypt I will call my son. Tick. Verse 17, Jeremiah talks of the prophecy of the mourning that will come over Israel because of the actions of Herod here. Tick. Verse 23, more fulfilment, Jesus will grow up as a Nazarene. Tick. So do you see that Jesus is being seen as someone so significant that dreams and angels of the Lord are happening all over the place and he's fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies and again and again. But there's more to it even than that. He's being compared, I think, certainly in this chapter, to a certain person from the Old Testament. Who's the person? Moses. Moses. As soon as you think of Egypt, because Egypt comes up in this passage, who do you think of? 
Moses. As soon as you think of baby boys being put to death by a tyrant, who do you think of? Moses. And there was a prophecy. Moses was the greatest prophet in Israel's history. But there was a prophecy in Deuteronomy that one day, one like Moses would come. Well, here he is. But this one is far greater than Moses. Moses was the prophet par excellence in the Old Testament. He spoke the words of God and said at the end of them, thus says the Lord. Jesus will speak the words, the words of God, but he will say, I tell you the truth. That's the difference. Moses gave the law of God to God's people. He brought the tablets down from the mountain and gave them the law. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 will say, I fulfil the law. Moses gave it to you, I fulfil it. Moses led the people of God in the greatest rescue at that time out of Egypt and saved them physically from slavery. This new Moses, this Jesus, will save people not just from slavery but from sin. Will save them for all eternity. There's a comparison going on here between the greatest servant of the Lord in many ways in the Old Testament and the one who is on a different level altogether, the Lord Jesus. So you've got fulfilment in this chapter big time. Jesus is fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies. You've got that being backed up by supernatural demonstrations. Pay attention to this. This is very important. Jesus is greater even than Moses. So there's more in this chapter, do you see, on who Jesus is as we begin Matthew's Gospel. But as I said at the beginning, there's an extra dimension in our passage today. And that is now that he's arrived, we start to see people respond differently to him. How will people treat this person? We know who he is, objectively. He's the Christ. He's the son of David, son of Abraham. He's, the, he's God himself who will save his people. But how subjectively will people respond to him? And we, we should be surprised when we see the different responses. Who would you expect to try and plot to kill the Jewish Messiah? Probably Gentiles. Who would you expect to seek out the Christ and worship him? Probably the Jewish king and religious leaders. And yet exactly the opposite happens. The Christ has arrived. The one the whole Old Testament has been waiting for and that God's plans and purposes revolve around. And the religious leaders, summoned by Herod, do what? Nothing. They do nothing. Their apathy is overwhelming. Herod's worse. Herod actively attempts to kill the one he knows is the Christ. They knew objectively who he was, but subjectively in their response to him, they're terrible. But then you have the Magi, these Gentiles, the ones we least expect to do the the right thing, who are looking out in the skies for the sign. When they see the sign, they travel a huge distance. They go to maximum kind of difficulty to seek him out, to worship him. That's their response. Isn't that amazing? Apathy, rejection, worship. Different responses to the same person. I want you to notice this morning that head knowledge was not enough. Let that be a warning to us. I thought Lee was excellent in her interview this morning when she asked for prayer, not just so that she would grow in her intellectual understanding, but that it would bring about a deeper love for the Lord. These religious leaders knew from the scriptures where the Christ would be born. 
Herod knew what it meant that the Christ was coming, but it obviously didn't translate to anything in their heart. I'm passionate about learning, generally, even more with Christian things. I'm passionate about studying and teaching the Bible. Anyone who's been at St Stephen's over the last few years will know that about me. One of the greatest privileges and joys that I have is the opportunity to open up the scriptures with people and share. I never take that for granted. It's an honour and I love it and I, I love the preparing of that because I sit under the word and learn and I'm shaped and I love sharing it with others and seeing it shape others. But in the end, people growing in their understanding of the Bible doesn't achieve anything if it doesn't lead to a deepening love for the Lord. I don't just preach so that we can just know the Bible better. Now, don't mishear me. I do preach so that we will know the Bible better but it's not the end of the matter. We want to know the Bible better so that we understand who God is more, so that we love him more deeply and trust him more confidently, so that we can appreciate who our king is and what he's done and serve him more faithfully so that we can worship him. It's not just an academic exercise. It is an academic exercise. I want to challenge that you know, the Lord didn't just reveal himself through visions and feelings. He gave us his word and he gave us his word, I'm sure, because we're supposed to study it. We're supposed to reflect on it and meditate on it. And some of us don't work hard enough on that. It is an academic exercise, but it's never to be just an academic exercise. These leaders knew their scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus. Herod knew this baby was the Christ, but he didn't know the Christ. The Magi worshipped Jesus. Jesus provoked apathy in some, opposition in others and worship, thankfully, in a few. It's still the same today. What does Jesus provoke in you? Is it apathy, like those religious leaders? Is it anger and rejection, like Herod? Or do we worship him, like the Magi? I want to labour that point and ask that question as strongly and starkly as I can because everything lives and dies on your answer to that question. How do you view Jesus? How do you respond to him and react to him? It doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things what you think of Michael Jackson or Donald Trump. It absolutely matters what you think of Jesus and how you live. Your eternal destination is at stake. Heaven or hell? The person who will rule your life is at stake. Will it be you or will it be the Lord? What you will live for primarily in life, what you will see your purposes will be answered over this question. Will you live for your own happiness and pleasure and self or will you live for the glory of God? How you identify you, yourself will, will come from this question. Do you demand to be identified as you want and treated as you want or do you find your greatest identification in the fact that you're a child of God? Objectively, you may be here this morning and know that Jesus is God. You may accept that truth academically, that he is who he claimed to be, but subjectively I'm asking you this morning, do you live for him? Do you love him? Do you follow him above and beyond anything else in life? If we worship Jesus, if we've got Jesus, I want to tell you we've got everything we need. If you're here this morning going, I know you didn't ask me to put my hand up, Jay, but I would be putting my hand up for that one because I do worship Jesus and I, I love him. Do you know the privilege of what you've got? You have the Son of God as your Saviour. You have the Son of God as your King. You have the Son of God as your friend. 
You've got forgiveness of sin. We, we say those words and we forget what it means. It's such a treasure to have your sin forgiven. I said a couple of weeks ago that Frank Sinatra sang about regrets. I've had a few, but too few to mention. I don't know if Frank Sinatra was a, a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you can't sing that, honestly. We have regrets. We have things that we've done that we know has caused pain and difficulty and we're ashamed. A Christian knows the beauty of forgiveness. A Christian knows what that burden being lifted feels like. You have it if Jesus is your king. We've also got new life as Christians. The old life is so difficult, but if you know who Jesus is and worshipped him like these magi, you've got new life. Still in this fallen world at the moment, so it's not yet what it will be, but it's so much different and better. And part of what makes it different and better is we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power of God within us, him working in us, helping us become more and more like Jesus, desiring the right thing, doing the right thing. And we have the new creation to look forward to. If you don't have that, this world's a very bleak place, but if you're worshipping Jesus, you've got the new creation to look forward to. And these are the things that last. This is not just something that comes with a warranty for two years and you're worried that it'll break after one year. These are things that don't just last for five years or 15 years. These are eternal. A Christian who has Jesus as king has absolute confidence, assurance, security, rest, all the things the world is looking for you find in Jesus. But it comes back to our response to Jesus. What's yours? I want to say a special word to any here this morning who are mucking around with Jesus. It's possible to do that. You kind of believe that he is who he said he is, but you're not really living for him. You've got one foot in the Jesus boat, one foot in the JBN boat. You won't have a foot in the JBN boat. Work it out. It's very possible to do that. I'm pretty sure I did that for the first couple of years I was a Christian. You're here this morning, so you must have some interest. You're listening to these words, so you must have some level of engagement. Perhaps you believe it's true, a bit like the religious leaders in Herod did, but at the moment you're too wrapped up in your own life to put following Jesus first. Or you're aware that if you were to put Jesus first, it will make too many changes to your life and you don't really want to do that yet. So you're apathetic like these leaders in in chapter 2. I want to say to you this morning, don't wait and don't delay when it comes to Jesus. It's too important. And you can get yourself in too big a mess and cause too many difficulties. And I know that people sometimes think, well, there'll be time at some stage. There'll be a stage in life where I kind of believe in Jesus. I'm not doing anything about it now, but at some stage in life I'll get round to that. We never know how long we've got. And Jesus is too important to muck around with. And humanly speaking, sometimes people do that for so long and go so far away that humanly speaking, they think, well, I can always come back and sometimes it's too too late for them. Now, there's a different way of looking at that, but I hope you know what I'm, I'm getting at. If you're here today and I'm describing you, do something about it now. Do like the Magi did and trust him. Fall on your knees and worship him. Don't muck around with him. It's what you were made for. Your life will change as a result because you'll be living the way that you were created for, the purpose that God has for you. And if there are any here this morning that are are wavering, so you've been worshipping Jesus, but you're finding it tough at the moment, I'm telling you this morning, stick with it. Persevere. 
The Christian life is hard and sometimes we do buckle a bit. Sometimes we feel the strain. Uh, I feel like sometimes we, um, as Christians, we let the Lord down in so many different ways that we just kind of almost give up. And we say, well, I've, I've mucked it up here, I've just, I just I can't do it, I, I give up. A bit like a, a dieter who's on, on a diet and then they, they have one bad day or one bad meal and then they go, that's it, I can't carry on with the diet anymore. And it's true, it's real. Not with Jesus. Get up the next day and keep going. Get up the next day and persevere, keep following him. There's a... Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Peter Rabbit. It's a children's movie. If you haven't seen Peter Rabbit, you need to see Peter Rabbit. It's very good. There's a pig on Peter Rabbit, a literal pig, but also a metaphorical pig. He's like the dietary kind of... So the pig is eating this, but he's got a great attitude. So he eats this bit of food and he goes, the diet starts now. But then he sees something else and he goes, now, now, now. He just keeps going. But he's got a great attitude because one failure doesn't stop him. He's living in a fantasy world. He's a bit foolish, this pig. But for the Christian, it does start again now. And even if I've mucked something up, I have a saviour holding on to me and a saviour sustaining me and strengthening by his spirit and I persevere and I keep going because he's the one who's holding me and he's the one who's worth it. Don't give up on him. We can respond to people in very different ways. Usually it doesn't really matter. It matters with Jesus. How are you going to respond to him? Apathy? Rejection? Or will you worship him? Let me pray.